0: The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians in the third chapter, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verses 9, 10, and 11 in the third chapter of Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. The apostle, you notice in these the words is continuing something that he's already been saying. We start with the word and, and what he's talking about is the uh, task of the work of the ministry, the Christian minister, the message of the gospel. Now, he's already told us what this is in a kind of personal or particular sense. And that is that it teaches and preaches what he has called the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now there I say he has been dealing with the personal, particular, individual benefits that we can all derive if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. But, says the apostle, my message doesn't stop at that. I have been called an apostle, I have been set apart and equipped, a dispensation of the grace of God has been given unto me for that reason, first and foremost, that I might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. But there is something more. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things, and so on. In other words, the Christian message and the Christian salvation are not only personal. The gospel is personal, and it always starts with the personal, and there is never anything general apart from the personal. It begins with the personal, but then it goes on beyond the personal and the individual uh, to something greater and larger and mightier. This bigger, larger thing is achieved, as we shall see, through the personal, but it is important that we should realize and bear in mind that the gospel of Jesus Christ, over and above what it gives us by way of personal salvation, has also a larger ambit and a wider scope. Now, it is to that that the apostle directs the attention of these Ephesians in these three verses And this is the thing that we must look at this morning. And surely nothing is more important for us this morning, and nothing is more appropriate for us this morning, than to look at the message of these three particular verses. This isn't merely and only armistice day. It's a day when the world is in trouble again. It's a day of war and of bloodshed. And at a time like this, there are many people who are asking questions, and I suppose the foremost question which they put to the church is this, what has Christianity to say about all this? What has Christianity to say about the world situation? What has Christianity to say about all these problems confronting mankind in such an acute manner at this present hour? Does Christianity hold out any hope? Has it got any light to give us on the situation, the grievous situation, in which we find ourselves? Now they're perfectly fair and perfectly legitimate questions. And may God grant that men and women will ask that question more and more. Now here in these three verses, we have the answer of this inspired apostle to those very questions. Nothing, I say, can be more relevant to the situation of this present hour than just this statement. Here we see how practical Christianity is. There is no question that can ever occur to any man or ever arise in the human consciousness, but that it will be answered completely and finally somewhere or another in Holy Writ. Well, now then, what does he say about all this? What has Christianity to say about the world? Is there any hope of a lasting peace? Can this message somehow or another bring to pass the concord and the amity between nations and amongst men, which men say throughout the world they long for and which they claim to desire? Well, we have nothing to do but to unfold and to expound. Uh, what uh, the Apostle says, as I say, in these three verses. Let us remember that this is not the personal opinion of the Apostle Paul. Those who meet here regularly will have seen already that he goes out of his way to say that this was given to him. It was revealed to him. It isn't his personal philosophy. It is what the Lord Jesus Christ had communicated to him. He had opened his eyes, he would given him an understanding. This is, therefore, the inspired answer of God to the questions of mankind at this present moment. What does he say? Well, the first thing he says is this, that there is a great deal of darkness with respect to this whole matter. Where do you find that, ask someone? Well, I find it in this phrase. Paul says, and to make all men see what is the mystery, the fellowship of the mystery. Now, that's a very interesting phrase of his. To make all men see. It's not too good a translation, this. Uh, what he really said was this. The word he actually used was to illuminate, to impart light, to shed light upon. This is a part of my calling, says Paul. To illuminate the minds of men with regard to this problem. Well, what does that imply? It implies, as I've said, that there is very great darkness in the minds of men as to all this. And surely this is something which everybody ought to be ready to confess this morning? Are you clear as to what's happening in the world? Does the present situation fit into your philosophy and into your ideas with regard to life and history and men? Well, as I read the papers and the books and the journals, it seems to me that there is a gross darkness. There is terrible confusion. Men and women, confessedly, do not understand. They feel that the whole world has somehow ran amok. There are many theories, of course, being put forward still, as they've always been put forward, which would attempt to explain the course of history and what is happening in the world. There are some uh, who say, and perhaps this is the most popular theory at the moment because it has behind it the great name of Professor Arnold Toynbee. That the whole process of history is, in a sense, just a matter of cycles. That you get one great power rising up, but the very fact that it rises up means that it stimulates those whom it tends to keep down and oppresses to rise up against it. Not only that, because it's arrived in a position of supremacy, it tends to slacken its efforts. And there is, therefore, a kind of seed of decay in its greatness and its glory. So as it tends to go down, the others, stimulated by its power, tend to arise. And the time comes, he says, when this great power is suddenly beaten by these other powers, which were nothing but which have arisen, it goes down, they go up. But then they, in turn, by going up, stimulate others against themselves, and they begin to rest on their oars, and so you get the whole thing repeated again. And this, he says, is the whole of history, rise and fall. No real advance, in a sense, but are just going round and round in circles. And as you look at history superficially, there seems to be a great deal to be said for that idea. Many a great empire and nation and kingdom has risen and has waxed and has waned, and yet the whole world seems to be very much as it was before. And then you've got another great uh, authority like the late Mr. H.A.L. Fisher, who quite honestly and frankly said that after spending a lifetime in studying history, He had come to the solemn and the simple conclusion that there was no purpose whatsoever to be seen in history. There seems to be no end, he says, no objective whatsoever. He saw no plan, no purpose, no ultimate objective at all. And there are others who agree wholeheartedly with what he says. Profound pessimism... No meaning, no purpose, no explanation at all. Things just happen, and nobody quite knows why, nor for what reason. But of course there is another group. We don't hear so much about them, and we don't hear so much from them at the present time. The so-called humanists and optimists. The people who taught so loudly and vociferously. At the end of the Victorian period, and in the Edwardian period especially, and surely one of the first things we've got to do as Christians, and indeed as just thinkers, is to see through all the folly and the error of Victorianism and Edwardianism. With its utterly false optimism, they believed, you see, that the world was advancing and advancing quite inevitably. There, you see, were the people who sang about the coming of the parliament of men and the federation of the world. This 20th century was going to be marvelous, all as the result of secular knowledge, as the result of teaching, education, and culture. Ah, yes, they did bring in the Bible. They would take out the ethical, moral teaching of our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount, Of course, they were too clever, they were too scientific to believe in miracles and things like that. But there was this wonderful ethical teaching, and as long as we taught everybody the ethics of Christ, where they'd all embrace and love one another, and there'd never be another war. I say we don't hear so much about this today. And of course, it isn't very surprising, is it? After what so many of us have been through in this present century... And in the light of what is happening in the world at this very moment, we don't seem to have arrived in that golden era in which men all together, having achieved sanity as the result of education, turn their swords into plowshares. There's no evidence for it. It seems to be almost the exact opposite. And so I say that foolish, vapid optimism of the Victorian and the Edwardian period, which lingered on to 1914 and which some tried to revive even after 1918, presents rather a pathetic aspect this morning. Now the fact is, I say, that mankind is rarely in the dark about the whole situation. In spite of all the thinking of the greatest thinkers and every attempt to work out a plan or a scheme for history to hold us out some hope for the future, there is nothing but darkness. Indeed, the present position, intellectually speaking, is more or less that which was expressed once and forever by the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, no doubt the great and the wise Solomon, Vanity of vanity is all is vanity. Or as this great apostle has already put it in the second chapter, no hope without hope. That seems to be the position of the world this morning. There is a gross darkness. Now then, what the apostle says is this, that in spite of all that there is light available, And the light is available in the gospel, and in the gospel alone, he has been called not only to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ, but also to make all men see, to illuminate, to enlighten, to throw light upon the situation, and to reveal something. There is light. But there is light only, he claims, in this gospel, and that is the great claim of the whole of the Bible and of the entire gospel. What the apostle says here is this, that he had been given this great and high privilege of holding this light before the Gentiles, before all men, to give them an understanding and an insight into what was happening in their world and what was going to happen. Now, I don't want to stay with this, but my dear friends, this is the only light. It was the claim of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He said, I... And the light of the world. And he said it in such a way as to mean this. I and I alone am the light of the world. You can't get light from your statesmen. You can't get light from your philosophers. You can't get light from your sociologists, your humanists. From your hedonists, the people who live for pleasure. There is no light anywhere. Here and here alone is the light. That is why the Christian church stands at this hour in such a mighty and a unique position. She is the only body that has a message that can give people any light at all. But she is called to enlighten. Very well, what is the light? Well, let me just analyze it for you. The light, according to the apostle, which he had to give to everybody was this. That God has a plan and a purpose for this world. That is true in spite of all the apparent confusion. Now he puts it like this. To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. It's an unfortunate translation, this fellowship. It really means the plan of the mystery. The administration of the ministry. The stewardship of the mystery. The carrying out of the mystery. This is God's Plan for the ages, he puts it again in verse 11, according to the eternal purpose, the purpose of the ages, which he purposed and has already started to bring to pass in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this is absolutely fundamental. God has a plan, a purpose, a great scheme for the whole of life in this world, and for men. The Bible is the great revelation of that. That is what the Bible is. The Bible, you see, is nothing but a revelation of God's purpose with regard to men and the world. People say, oh, but the Bible is remote. I want something practical. Very well, you run to your newspaper. Have you got it? You run to your historians and philosophers, have you got it? Do you want something practical? Go to your Bible. The whole theme of this book, its one great message, is to give you an understanding of life in this world, what it's all about and what is going to happen to it. Indeed, therefore, this, I say, is a very good test as to whether we are truly Christian this morning. Do you know what God's plan for this world is? It's a part of Christian knowledge. Christian people should have a unique understanding into the world situation at this moment. And if we haven't got it, we are very poor Christians. We are very ignorant Christians. We may have been stopping only at the unsearchable riches of Christ, feeling our own spiritual pulse, coddling ourselves spiritually. That's all right, but go beyond that. If we are to help others, we are to have an understanding of God's plan for the whole cosmos. And we are to enlighten this gross darkness in the minds of people at this present hour. It's a very good test, therefore, of our Christian standing, of our adult position as Christians. That's the first thing, then, that there is a plan. The second thing he says about it is this that this plan has been in God and in God's mind before the beginning of time. Listen to him saying it. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world, which He means, by which he means this, from the beginning of the ages has been hid in God. Of course, it was there before that. What he says is that God has hidden it from the ages until this point when Christ came and he began to reveal it. But until then, throughout the the ages and the centuries, it was hid in the mind of God. But it was there. And that is the thing that I'm anxious to impress upon your minds this morning. Thank God for this. History, my friends, has not got out of hand. History has not got out of God's hands. The first thing that you and I have to realize this morning is this, that God is not in the flux of time. He is not subject to all the changes in the policies of nations and all the lying and all the rest. He's entirely above it all. He dwelleth in eternity. He looks down upon time and upon the world. He's not in it. And this is surely the most consoling thing that one can ever discover at a time like this. That God's plan was made perfect and complete before the world was made, before the time process began. And it's there irrespective of all this and it's going on and it's certain. There is nothing contingent about God's plan. God doesn't have to improvise. God doesn't have to modify his policy because of what somebody else has done. No, no. It was all planned before the beginning of the ages, before time itself was created. This great and eternal purpose of God. If you don't feel as you hear that, that you're standing on the rock of ages Well, my dear friend, I doubt whether you're a Christian at all. It's the most glorious news a man can ever receive in a world like this. When all around my soul gives way, He only is my strength and stay on Christ, on God, the solid rock I stand. All... Everything else, is but sinking sand. Now then, there is a second great statement, that this has been in the mind of God from eternity. Then the next thing, of course, is that this, as he says, has been hidden. He's been calling it a mystery. And we've seen that a mystery is something which does exist, but which has not yet been fully revealed, and which the mind of men can never arrive at by its own efforts. But God has revealed it, he said. Now, now you see. There's a difference between what was the case and what is true now. It had been hidden throughout these ages, but now, he says, unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places shall be demonstrated by the church the manifold wisdom of God. This I just note in passing, but it is... So wonderful, he says, that this had not only been written by been hidden from men, you see. It had even been hidden from the angel. That's the message of verse 10. To the intent that now one, to the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. The manifold wisdom of God. Even those bright angelic spirits, they didn't know. There is such a suggestion that they even wondered. They knew that God was going to do something, but they didn't know what it was. And they're going to be enlightened, says Paul, by the church, by what happens to you and by me. But there it is, though it was hidden from men and hidden from the principalities and powers. It was there and it was still being worked out and still being carried on. This great purpose that God had purposed he was bringing to pass, it's the whole story of the Old Testament. It's running through it like a golden thread, if you have eyes to see it. Things seem to be going this way and that way, but God's purpose goes steadily on. Though hidden still in, in being, through the ages one eternal purpose runs. And here it is going on. Well, then that brings me to the crucial question. What is this plan? This plan which God purposed before the foundation of the world, which he kept hidden from men and from angels, which is nevertheless there and being carried on. What is it? Well, now here it seems to me the answer is given by this phrase at the end of verse 9. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things. Now, why do you think the apostle said that at that point? Why does he, when he uses the name of God, say, the God who created all things? There, I think I see the key to the answer of this great question. What is he saying? He's saying this. He is just reminding us of the fact that this, after all, is God's will. It isn't man's world, it's God's world. Who created all things. And if ever there was a moment when mankind needed to be told that, it's now. We've become so clever, you see, we can split the atom. How marvelous, how wonderful we are. We think we've made everything and are responsible for all. Blind dogs as we are in our ignorance. It's God's will. Who created all things. If you want to try to understand what's happening in the world today, that's the point at which you start. This is a world that has not been brought into being by men, but by God. He made it, and he made it absolutely perfect. It was never meant to be as it is this morning. This is a travesty of it. This isn't the world that God made. It is fundamentally, but as you see it, it isn't. No, no, it's sin that's made the world as it is. It's sin that has brought in warfare and bloodshed and spite and malice and envy and hatred and all these other foul and abominable things. All that which is described so perfectly in the early chapters of Genesis, that's the cause of the trouble. God's world, God made it. He looked upon it and saw that it was good. It was absolutely perfect. It was a paradise. That's the message of the gospel, to get men to see that again, to assert that. It's God's world. It belongs to him. Man has made it what it is because in his folly he listened to Satan. But, and here's the glorious thing, God's plan is to restore it again to perfection. Now the apostle has said all this rarely in the 10th verse of the first chapter where he put it like this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him reunite in Christ. You remember we saw it. And that is the message of the Christian gospel to this war-ridden, torn, warring, distracted world of ours this morning. God's plan is again to reunite everything. How is he going to do it? He is going to do it, he tells us, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed In Christ Jesus our Lord. Now then, let me again put it very dogmatically. There is no hope whatsoever for this world this morning apart from Jesus Christ. If you know where it is, I'd be glad to hear of it. Have you found any? I say again, search your newspapers. Search your books. History, philosophy, everything you like. Poetry. Go the complete round. Where is it? Where is there any vestige of hope? There is none. God is going to do it in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is the only way. Well, how, says someone, that's the question. How is he going to do it in Christ Jesus? How sorry I am that I've got to give you some negatives now. But I've got to do it, of course, because I know what's being said probably from thousands of pulpits this morning. I, therefore, have to put this negative. It is not going to be done simply by the teaching of Jesus Christ. Of all the fatuous and foolish teachings today, there is none that is so fatuous as this. That all you need to do is to take the Christian teaching and apply it to the modern position. Some people say it's quite simple. You simply go to tell people the ethic of Christ and then they'll come together. They say you can have peace at the present time in this world if only you'll follow the teaching of Christ or follow his example. Very deliberately and solemnly I assert that that is one of the completest denials of the Christian message you can ever listen to. And I'll tell you why. That is utterly impossible. It's because that is impossible that Christ came and died on the cross. You see, it works like this. Why did Christ come? The answer is that because everything else had failed. If you simply have to tell men what to do and that enables them to do it, well then, the law that God gave to the children of Israel through Moses would have put everything right. There are the Ten Commandments and the moral law. And if only men had practiced them, all problems would have been solved. There would never have been another war. There would never have been another difficulty. But, mankind, the children of Israel, failed to keep them. They completely failed. Everybody failed. Not a single individual kept that law. The apostle Paul himself puts it like this in writing to the Romans. What the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. The law's all right, but where's the trouble? It's in men. The law is perfect, yes, but man's has got to carry out the law, and that's the difficulty. Man doesn't want to carry out the law, and man hasn't the power to carry out the law. Therefore, I say, if man cannot keep the Ten Commandments, how can he possibly keep the Sermon on the Mount? If man can't come up to his own standard, how can he conceivably follow the pattern Of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is sheer mockery. It's a denial of the gospel. And anyone who preaches the Christian faith as just that sort of pacifism is denying Christ. There is no greater denial than that. That is the final kind of heresy. Man is too weak to keep God's law. Hence the reason why Christ came. Very well then, how is God proposing to do all this in Christ Jesus our Lord? Well, I can tell you, it's all in this great epistle. We've already dealt with it in the second chapter. It's this. It isn't that Christ tells you and me what we've got to do. This great purpose is coming to pass through what Christ himself has done for us. Salvation, my friend, is the activity of God, not yours, not mine. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It's what God has done and is doing in Christ that is going to bring this great purpose to pass. What is it? Well, here it is. The first thing that we all need is to be reconciled to God. We cannot be blessed by God while we are enemies to God. God will not bless us unless we are in the right relationship to him, unless we are reconciled to him. How can men be reconciled to God? There's only one answer. It is through Jesus Christ and him crucified. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's the first step. The enmity is going to be taken out of us. We've got to be reconciled to God. And God does it in Christ. He's put our sins upon him. He's punished them in him. And therefore he looks at us and says, I forgive you. He makes us his children. He adopts us into his family. Yes, but wait a minute. He then does this astounding thing that the apostle refers to here in these very verses we're looking at. The church to the intent that no and to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. What does this mean? Here it is. God is ultimately going to restore peace and unity and concord in the world through Christ, through the church. What's this? Well, I come back again to this statement about God who created all things. Here, This is what we are told. The God who created the world at the beginning and made it perfect, and who in his own inscrutable will allowed and permitted sin and evil to come in through the devil, is again, because it is is his world, going to restore it all to perfection. How is he going to do it? By a new creation. And the new creation is the church. Now, this is absolutely vital to this biblical message. The situation of men in sin is such that nothing less than a new creation can deal with the situation. Mankind cannot be improved. Mankind, by various methods of application externally, can never be brought to this position of perfection. There must be a new start, a new beginning, a new creation. And what God is doing in Christ is to bring into beings a new creation. The thing that Paul has been talking about. This new humanity. The church. This new body, this one new man in Christ, containing the Jew and the Gentile, all the divisions abolished, a new thing. Not Jew and Gentile just loosely stuck together, but both of them created anew, and created into one body of which they all have become members. And this is the great message of Christianity. Ever since the Lord Jesus Christ was in this world, this great new humanity is being formed. Yes, there have been wars and periods of peace. There has been bloodshed and conquered. You see nothing but that as you read your secular history books, but I see something else. I see God in every generation drawing out a people unto himself from the world, creating them anew in Christ Jesus, adding them to the church. I see a new body, a new humanity gathered in, spreading, increasing, going on and developing something absolutely new. I see a new race of people, Christ the firstborn and all these his brethren, born out of him. I see God gathering them there together. He's preparing them for something. That's going on. Do you see it even now? It's going on this morning. That is God's grand purpose. And it will go on, my friends, until God's plan is completed. And when it is complete, he will send the Lord Jesus Christ back again into this world. On the clouds of heaven, as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords, and he'll come back to judgment. And he will destroy all his enemies. Satan and all his forces. All who followed Satan and rejected Christ. Evil and iniquity and sin in every shape and form. Will be cast into a lake of perdition. The world will be cleansed and purified. There will be, said the Lord himself, in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit upon the throne of his glory. There is a regeneration coming of the whole cosmos. The very world itself will be perfect. There will be a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. The lion shall lie down with the lamb and the wolf shall eat straw with the ox and the little child shall lead them. Absolute perfection. It's coming. It's at the ultimate end of God's purpose. There is a new world looming ahead of us. One God One law, one element, and one far-off divine event to which the whole creation moves. It's coming. That's the thing that had been revealed to Paul. That's the thing that he wants all men to see. That is the light upon the darkness this morning. But let me make it plain to you. That is God's plan. It is absolutely certain, for he is still the creator, and this is still his world. Remember, he is still the God who said, let there be light, and there was light. Let men do as he pleases, let him do his utmost to stop it, nothing can stop it. He is the God who created all things, and in spite of hell, he'll go on with it. Read your Old Testament. There, you see, in spite of all that happened, God went on with it. Christ comes, Herod tries to kill him. The enemies try to get rid of him, still it goes on. They crucified him, he rose again. Do what they will, let the world do what it can. Let the whole of hell, I say, be let loose. God's purpose, because he is the creator, can never be frustrated. But let me add this. This plan gives us no knowledge and no details whatsoever. With regard to particular incidents and particular wars, I find nothing in the Bible about Colonel Nasser and Egypt or any one of these nations. I'm not interested in the vagaries of British Israelism, whether Britain goes up or down. This plan is going on. It doesn't give us such details. It's our self-importance that makes us look for them. This is the great eternal purpose. Doesn't play with trivialities and with the mere incidents of time. Nations can rise and fall. God's plan goes steadily on. And the plan will not be modified to suit the whims and the likes and the dislikes of any individual or of any nation. Indeed, you must be prepared for some strange surprises with this plan. You will think at times that everything's going wrong. The churches are empty today. You say, where's your plan? Wait a minute, my friend. They've been empty many times before, but in the fullness of his time, God sends a revival. He'll send it again. But above all, I want to leave you with this uppermost in your mind. God's plan is always in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the center. He's everything. It's all in him. It is also through the church. There are no benefits to anybody unless they're in the church. If you're not a Christian, don't look to God for benefits and blessings. All his blessings come through Christ, through the church, to those who belong to the body. All else is incidental. And therefore I am constrained to say this. This message holds out no hope whatsoever for peace on earth and amongst the nations until Christ comes back to the final victory. I want to repeat that. It's an essential part of this gospel. There is not a vestige nor a glimmer of hope in this book for peace amongst men and nations in this world until Christ comes back again and finally destroys sin and evil. While there is sin and lust and passion in the human heart, there will be fighting and war. There is no promise that there won't be, but he'll come back in spite of it and he'll rout his enemies, he'll cleanse the universe. And then, there shall be no more war, no more sighing, no more sorrow. Peace shall reign universally and forever, and forever. Is there someone listening to me who is tempted to say, well, I wish I hadn't come. That's very depressing. I thought you were going to give me some hope. I came for some comfort. This is but depressing. You say there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. Very well, I'm not interested in your Christianity. Is that your feeling, my friend? If it is, I've just two things to say to you. The first is that quite patently you are not a Christian because no Christian speaks like that. A Christian isn't merely interested in personal comfort and solace. The Christian is one who is concerned about the glory of God and the greatness of his holy name. That's my first comment. You can have all the comfort you want from the cults and from travesties of the Christian message, I'm called to preach the gospel. The second thing I say to you is this. You say that this sort of preaching is irrelevant to you. It doesn't help you in your present position. My answer is, again, to point out to you that nothing else helps you in your present position. It's the only message that tells you anything about the present position. Why, it is as it is. But let me say this to you very solemnly. Do you feel that this is irrelevant to you? If you do, and if you continue in that mood and of that opinion until your grave, a day will come when you will suddenly discover that there was nothing more relevant for you. Because you are in this purpose, you are in this plan. God is going to judge the world in righteousness. And you are a citizen of this world. You will be judged in righteousness. This is the eternal purpose which God purposed before the foundation of the world. It is certainly being carried out and will be carried out. And therefore I say that all who belong to the devil and his forces, all who reject this gospel because it didn't give them some temporary little comfort or a little solace and soothing, some saccharine kind of piety, all have rejected him will find themselves rejected on that gray day and will not be amongst the company who shall bask in the brightness of God's glory and reign with him as kings and priests throughout eternity. Thank God for the light of the gospel in this dark hour that in spite of all we see in the world we know God is still there and his purpose is certainly and surely being carried out and even in and through us who are truly members of the church, truly members of the body of Christ. Amen.